and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast that is nimbly dancing through the history, mythology and nature of Scotland. I'm Annie, your slightly agile archivist. And I'm Jenny, your Highland fling. Oh, I do love a Kayleigh, Jenny. Yes, let's talk about Kayleigh's, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait until we're able to fly around the community centres again, tossing around strangers and friends alike in endless circles. Oh, the Kayleigh dancing, Jenny, the Kayleigh dancing. Well, the bruises, that's what I remember in the morning. It's not a good Kayleigh unless you've got bruises all down your arms the next morning. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure the kind of Kayleighs you've been going to, Jenny, dearie me. Glasgow (laughs) (laughs) Kayleighs. But until we'll be back to our respective Kayleighs, we have another kind of Scottish dancers to keep our dreams of Strip the Willow going. Yes, these dancers go by many names. The streamers, the Rory Bories, the Nimble Men. And of course, the Merry Dancers. But if you've never heard of these, fear not. For the name they go by most commonly out with Scotland is the Northern Lights. For thousands of years, humans have looked up to the sky in awe as gently shifting streaks of bright colour illuminate the dark night around them. Yes, and the best places to see the Northern Lights, or the Aurora Borealis, as it's also known, is, of course, in the North. And here's a lovely wee extract by Jessie Margaret Edmondson Saxby from her, the name. <laughs> from her 1877 book, Rockbound, A Story of the Shetland Isles. My recollections of early childhood are, after all, scanty enough, I remember always I wore a black frock. This circumstance is impressed on my mind because I had, and still have, a perfect passion for rich and gorgeous colours. Can you not do a Shetland accent? Of course I can't do a Shetland accent. (laughs) (laughs) And we just watched The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. (laughs) And her accent is brilliant. And I was like, next time I have to do a Women of Story of Scotland, I'm just going to (laughs) do... McGonagall's accent from the 60s. <laughs> okay, excellent. Sorry to interrupt you, Jenny. <laughs> Nature in the grey north seldom gave my eyes a feast of radiant hues. No brilliant butterflies and flowers clothing the earth in the garments of heaven. No varying foliage of soft spring, emerald or sunny autumn, chestnut. No winter clusters of red berries and wreaths of evergreen. Only on some serene summer evening, when the sky became like a poet's dream, and the earth and the sea put on the glory of the clouds, or on wild winter nights, when the aurora borealis shot forth a fearful spirit, light, that I caught gleams of the beauty dwelling in colour. And that's what the northern lights are all about, bringing colour to the landscape. And Annie, wait for this. I also found a stunning description of the Northern Lights in the archive of the Fife Herald from May 1838. Wait a minute, Jenny. Hold back the trams. Have Mm -hmm. you been using archives? I have. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Now that I can use the archives, Annie, let me tell you, I'm a whiz. I'm not sure the podcast needs you anymore, Annie. You know, I think I'm I'm thinking of replacing you with my pet uh, haggis. It sounds like silence, but this is really the sound of my heart breaking, Jenny. 
I think it's I, I think I can hear a small tear slide down your cheek. <laughs> Please just read the quote. You know, my hagney wouldn't speak to me like that. <clears throat> <laughs> On Monday, I be presented a beautiful aspect. A great number of vessels taking to the water. The silvery waters kissing the sandy shore and the tiny wavelets playing among the dark rocks. Although we had some heavy hail and snow showers in the afternoon, the night set in clear and cloudless, with a brilliant display of aurora borealis, as if the merry dancers of the pole were footing it fealty around the Arctic Circle to hail the birth of the merry May. Indeed, the north seemed an unfathomed ocean of light, Whole waves of lambent flame rolled, flashing far to the south, while the brilliant stars appeared like golden pebbles shining in the depths of the blue sky. Stunning, Jenny. So let's go get our dancing shoes on and make merriments with the sky. Yay! This stunning phenomenon usually occurs in high-latitude regions, so that's either really far north or really far south. And as we in Scotland are pretty far north, we are able to see the Merry Dancers fairly regularly. However, the country does straddle the boundary of their usual extent, and so most of the time they cannot be seen from all over. The further north you are, the higher a chance there is that you'll see them. Now, I grew up in Glasgow, and so I never even had a glimpse of them in the city. However, Annie, you grew up at a higher latitude than me. Um, did you see them as a kid? Yes. So I grew up in the lovely wee seaside town of Nairn in the Highlands, where we quite often got to see the aurora. I'd say on an annual basis, um, and often multiple times a year, usually yeah. in winter. Now, I lived in the countryside, so there wasn't any light pollution. So I would get clear visuals of the stars and the sky. And I really enjoyed the northern lights. They don't quite look like what you expect them to look like, especially if you've seen photographs of them. They're kind of more subdued and delicate. They look like clouds of glowing light amongst the stars. Greens most commonly, or yellows and reds sometimes, shining and then fading, like a blob-shaped, technicolored firefly. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was recently in Orkney and we saw something very similar to that. So it wasn't like big streaks of green, but it was this really gentle green glow on the horizon. Mm -hmm. It was very mm -hmm. nice. However, I have seen the northern lights in the Arctic. They were much louder and more eccentric than what we had in Nairn. Though I'm sure that the Northern Isles, maybe up in Shetland, get that kind of vivid luminosity. It feels like a very cosmic experience to watch the Northern Lights. And now I use an app on my phone to warn me when Northern Lights might be happening in the sky so I can get out and see them. Oh, that's a good idea. But Jenny, what actually makes the magic that is the aurora? Well, it's a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's a very cosmic story that starts with the solar wind. This is a stream of charged particles that the sun blasts out towards Earth. 
When these reach the Earth, they interact with our magnetosphere, causing flurries of activities to intense geomagnetic storms. And as epic as this may sound, it happens pretty much constantly. This layer of the atmosphere is vital in protecting us from these harmful solar toots. And it's during this protection that these charged particles are deflected away from their path by the magnetosphere. And this causes the Aurora Borealis, one of the most beautiful natural spectacles on Earth. What is a magnetosphere, Jenny? Look, Annie, all right, I gave my description and (laughs) I don't owe you anything to go into more detail about what on Earth the magnetosphere is. It's, it's the thing that pulls the compass around to north. So okay, what the compass yeah. is doing is tuning into the magnetosphere. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Jen. Technically, it's caused by the core of the Earth being molten and spinning. And they think, no one's actually sure where magnetism comes from, but it's the core of the Earth being molten iron and spinning and putting out various different charges of energy, I believe. But you asked. <laughs> <laughs> so technically, it could be a wizard. Technically, no one, no one has been to the centre of the Earth to check if there is or is not a wizard in there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you me? Well, anyway, the Aurora Borealis, these gentle dancing bands of light, arc across our northern skies, illuminating it with streams of green, purple, red and blue. And while your modern day science is all fine and well, Jenny, people have always been able to explain the Aurora, the nimble men. Now, one of the oldest beliefs about the aurora, which bides from the outer Hebrides, is that the nimble men, the northern lights, are the children of the Kaliach. The Kaliach, also pronounced the Kayach in some parts of Scotland, is the Gaelic old woman deity of the whole environment. She's a really exciting figure in folklore and a lot happens around her. It was believed that she had three children. The fairies are her descendants on earth, the blue men of the Minch are her descendants in the sea, and the nimble men, the northern lights, are her descendants in the sky. So some of the lore developed around a particular kind of dusty red cloud that sometimes appear under a particularly bright and vivid aurora. This folklore tells us that the dusty red cloud that is sometimes seen under the northern lights was not from the nimble men frolicking and playing, but rather it was a sign that they were waging war. And according to the folklorist Donald Alexander Mackenzie, when the northern lights are particularly bright and this strange red cloud appears underneath, people used to call this the pool of fairy blood. Because, you see, the nimble men would be waging war with other supernatural beings, and it was the fairies who they slaughtered. Wow, so they're the supernatural deities who play or dance or war in the sky. And we've actually done an episode on the Kayak's Children in the Sea, the Blue Men of the Minch, previously. So if you'd like to hear more about them, it is a very fun episode. It's a very strange episode, that's for sure. (laughs) But then the story of the nimble men and their siblings evolved as Christianity mingled with Gallic lore. Though, bear in mind, both sets of beliefs were originally written down at similar times by folklorists, so it's really hard to verify when the beliefs shifted and the accuracy of the lore. Mm. It's all taken from oral tradition, 
and then written down by people quite inclined to romanticize it, I feel. <laughs> so when the old Celtic legends mingled with Christianity, the stories changed. So, instead of the nimble men being the children of the Kaliach, in the Christian version, they are the rebel angels who sided with Lucifer, who started the war in heaven. And when God expelled Lucifer, the fairies, the blue men and the nimble men all fell from heaven. But instead of going to the underworld along with Lucifer, they were trapped on the plains in between heaven and hell, which is, of course, our world, Jenny. Wow. So in this version, they are much more, um, I guess, scary they're evil demon angels here to steal our souls i guess so should, so would people be scared of them when they appeared do you think? Uh, not at all jenny folklore mm. is a very fluid thing <laughs> and <laughs> if a legend can fit into a belief system then it can trickle in like water into a glass it fits into a narrative of old fears of the supernatural and of ungodly powers which simply stemmed from a lack of scientific knowledge about the environment and the atmosphere. Magnetosphere. (laughs) (laughs) However, the good thing about the biblical version of God getting St. Michael to expel Lucifer and the rebel angels from heaven is that there's a delicious cake to celebrate this on Michaelmas Day called Struan Cake. It's a bit like a griddle scone, and it is absolutely the best cake. I, I, I love it. <laughs> I'll try to make it sometime for us, Jenny. It's, it's a top quality cake. All right, but I do have to say that griddle scone sounds like the name of a fallen angel. <laughs> <laughs> have you never had a griddle scone, Jenny? No, and I actually Googled them to see what they were. Is it just like a fat potato scone? No, 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 no. So a griddle scone is a scone you make on the griddle or in a frying pan. Um, But it's a really traditional type of Scottish scone. So folks usually make scones in the oven. But a griddle scone is a really big fat scone. It fills up the whole pan and then you slice it into quarters or eighths, depending on how big your scone is. All right. Well, we'll have to make some of them as well. Yeah. Now, not surprisingly, we see more folklore about the merry dancers in places where they're more commonly seen. And so naturally, one place that has the most stories about the aurora is, of course, Shetland. The Shetland Isles are a group of islands that sit 100 miles north of mainland Scotland. And so it is regularly treated to the dancers. And I have a wonderful tale from Sandness a small village out on the west coast of the main island. One crisp spring morning, a fiddler left his family home to go fishing. Now, he headed down to his favourite spot in the crags, and after he set up his wand, or his rod, he took out his fiddle and he played to the waves, the wind and the selkies. And after a successful day on the line, he picked it up at twilight and headed home. But, as it got darker... He saw some dancing lights in the sky over a small knoll he knew well. As he got closer to investigate, 
he saw that there was a tiny open door in the knoll, and behind it there were many a dancing trows. Ah, trows! So trows are the hill folk of Shetland, who hold many of the same traits as either trolls or fairies. Yes, they are, and trows have a reputation as tricksy little beings. But as the man watched them dance, he thought that they'd benefit from some of his fiddling, and so in he went. And as he started to play, the hillock door closed behind him, and the grass grew over once more. When he didn't return that night, a search party went out for him, but to no avail. And it was sadly concluded that he must have fallen off the cliffs while fishing. Oh no! But he's inside the knoll having a kelly, and a long kelly it was. For a hundred years passed, and the man's family all grew old and. Did what old people do and died themselves, and one evening, a new family of many generations sat around their hearth, and all of a sudden, in burst an ancient-looking man with a long white beard and a fiddle. He started shouting and howling and demanding that these strangers get out of his house immediately. Now, the family, admittedly, all had a good laugh at this. Who was this impassioned and angry old man? Claiming to live in their house, but old Gramps in the corner, he didn't crack a smile. Once the family had calmed down, Gramps asked the bearded stranger his name, and upon hearing it, he let out a long sigh and recalled that, "Aye, the fellow by that name used to live in this very house, but he went missing a long time before my time, presumed dead off the crags." And upon hearing this. The old bearded man quietly asked about the family who had lived in this very house. Aye, I'm sorry, they're all gone too. The old man with the beard and the fiddle dropped his head and sighed. After a pause, he said, "Well, if they're all gone, then I had best be going too." And he apologised to the family and wished them all a warm and safe night. Oh, that's so sad. The poor fellow with his fiddle. It is, and he left the house and closed the door behind him. But the youngest lass of the family grew scared for him and ran out of the house to see where he had gone. As her eyes adjusted to the dark, she saw him standing in a field, and watched as he raised his fiddle to his chin and began to play. Now, as he did, the nimble men erupted into dance above him. The whole sky was alight with streaks of intense green, red, and purple. All dancing separately yet somehow together to the music played by the old fiddler, and as the tune slowed to a sorrowful end, the man collapsed. The girl hurried over and found the remains of a man dead for a hundred years. But the tune the fiddler had played to the merry dancers remained in the girl's head, haunting her, but in like a friendly way, until she herself took up fiddling so that she could play the merry dancers' music. And pass the remnant of the fiddler and the trows on through the generations. Ah,、oh, marvelous! What I love about this tragic tale is how beautifully it shows the relationship between the Northern Lights and the the trows, the fairy folk, because trows are really the the ultimate supernatural being of Shetland, and so this tale reflects the creation story we told earlier. Where they are the sibling to the Northern Lights, 
And of course, it's this use of light that first enticed the young fiddler into the hill of the trowels and then dancing to his music and welcoming him into their ranks at the end. It highlights the ties between the various mythologies, bringing them to life as they start to move and dance together, just like the Northern Lights themselves. And if there's one thing I've learned doing this podcast, Annie, is that the number one rule of mythology is that you never, ever go into a small grassy knoll filled with wild dancing and severely lacking in clocks. Yes, it really reminds me of the story we discovered in Tom the Heurich mm-hmm. and possibly every other grassy knoll in Scotland. Mm-hmm. There's yep. just a group of naughty little supernatural folk hiding inside and waiting to steal you away for a hundred years. But Jenny, is there ever an acceptable amount of clocks? I mean, if you can see, you know, that there's a clock in there, then I feel like that should be fine. You know, just keep an eye on it and maybe wrap a rope around your waist and tie it to a tree before you go in. I think that should be okay. (laughs) If you've got a clock, surely you still need a calendar because what does it matter if you know how much time has passed if you don't know which day it is? Well, I'm assuming you could tell how many days have passed based on how much time has passed on the clock. (laughs) I feel we're ready to go into the grassy knoll, Jenny. Let's just test it out. I don't think we're ready at all. (laughs) (laughs) If we don't have another podcast episode for 100 years, you folks know what has happened. (laughs) The Northern Lights are also thought to be an indication of great changes happening in the world. The heavens signalling the death of a king or a queen or a great hero. And there's a famous poem about this which describes the scenes in Edinburgh after the Battle of Flodden in 1513. However, though, to understand this poem to be relevant to the Northern Lights, to make any sense of it at all, (laughs) we do actually need to put some of our battle gear on and head back in time. I always have my battle gear on. It's just a kilt and a claymore sword and a pocket full of mixed nuts. Seems like sensible battle attire, Jenny. Yes, it is. Now, Flodden was a battle between the kingdoms of Scotland and England when King James IV of Scotland decided to invade England. Now, he may have drunk a wee bit too much buckfast and decided that the Treaty of Perpetual Peace of 1502 was actually going to just be the treaty of very temporary and quite bitter peace of 1502. At this time, King Henry VIII was the king of England, and he wanted not only six wives, but also to tell all his friends that he was really the smug overlord of Scotland. So Henry VIII really wasn't a very pleasant king at all. Famous for beheading poor Annie Boleyn, and replacing her on his podcast with his pet haggis. Mm -hmm. I mean, replacing her in his kingdom with another wife. Very nasty man. (laughs) Yes, and Henry VIII was vile, but this was in his younger days, long before what he's most known for, i.e. the beheading of wives. He was young and wanted to be known as a great, strong leader. So he did what 16th century kings do to prove their masculinity and declared war on France. However, at the bequest of the French king, Scotland's James IV declared war on England and charged across the border to troll Henry VIII. 
Now this is a classic honouring of the Auld Alliance, which was a cheeky little pact between Scotland and France to stop England from invading either of them. Essentially, this wonderful little treaty meant that if England attacked either, it would find itself having to split forces between the two countries. Ah, oh, I wish we could use the old alliance to rejoin the European Union. That would be lovely and wholesome. <laughs> it would be. Okay. <laughs> well, England's ancient feud with Scotland reignited in a nasty way. Because out of control of either kings, we have the border reavers. Border reavers were raiders, both Scottish and English, who were always plundering and robbing the borders on both sides. They were a bit like the youngest child in the family of both countries, <laughs> just sort of left to destroy and steal and cause destruction to their heart's content out of eyeshot of the parents in charge. But the border reavers, these outlaws, were also mercenaries for hire. They were fiercely loyal to their family clans, not to the nations that they were actually located in. They were about as trustworthy as a goat left alone in a cabbage patch. And what's fun about these folks is that I'm one of them, Annie. I'm both a Maxwell and a Johnson, two very famous feuding border clans who were both known for doing whatever they fancied on both sides of the borders. Well, you do remind me of a goat in a cabbage patch, Jenny. <laughs> exactly. It's like I'm letting the mafia into your stable. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Border Reavers did actually steal a couple of James IV's horses in his 1497 campaign. And fed them nothing but cabbage. <laughs> now, these Border Reavers were skilled at fighting and looting and could cause quite a brutal nuisance to either country and they made a big spectacle in the run-up to the Battle of Flodden. You see, England had been fanning the Reavers to be raiding Scotland, so in response, one of James's nobles took it upon himself to march a massive crew of several thousand Reavers through the north of England, plundering and raiding. However, this was outmanoeuvred by Catherine of Aragon, Regent of England, and a noble on her behalf countered this by sending in some sneaky archers to ambush the reavers and they all fled, leaving their stolen goods behind. The illegal rave was shut down. Okay, so this was known as the ill raid in the lead up to Flodden, which feels like a really bad omen. When your giant army of outlaws is running away, it's maybe indicative that it's not the best time to strike. However, James IV is bound by the old alliance, and he has strong military expertise. Plus, he is famed for his determination. So, in the spirit of chivalry, James sends a polite notice to England to let them know that he's going to be invading in a month. He would be moving south in August 1513. Now, Annie, this may shock you, but the spirit of chivalry is not actually known to win battles. It's not nearly as reliable as surprise trebuchets. <laughs> well, on receiving this notice, Catherine of Aragon, who you mentioned was regent whilst Henry VIII was at war in France, she began to make preparations for the threat from Scotland. So England became ready for war. James takes an army of 42,000 and marches across the Scottish border. This is the largest Scottish army to ever invade England. This is an incredible force. 
and it does have initial success by laying siege and claiming Norman Castle in Northumberland. Now, James is on a very tight schedule. Remember, he's already <laughs> emailed England it, so they know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> he's a punctual man. But his battle campaign needs to be short and focused. You see, Scotland has this kind of feudal system at the time that meant that all men aged between 16 and 60 would have to serve to fight and protect if called upon. It was a system of honour and obligation, or mutual protection, but it meant that men only had to serve as soldiers for 40 days, meaning that the Scottish army was unpaid. So this is a really fragile system, because you have men fighting for their own kingdom, for their own honour, and for their obligations towards their superiors, towards the people that they're perhaps renting the land of, and ultimately to the king. If you have the hearts and the loyalty, then this army could be indestructible. However, you also run the risk of just having a lot of farmers who might want to get back in time to harvest properly. It's a risky type of army. Yep, and this was an issue for them. There was a great deal of sickness and desertion. So by the time we actually get to the Battle of Flodden on the 13th of August, 1513... Scottish forces are reduced to 34,000. James's army had pitched in a great location, upon Flodden Hill. However, the English forces snuck around the hill and set up camp on the northern side of it at Howard Ridge. Now, this is where everything goes a bit skew-whiff for King James. And by a bit skew-whiff, I mean horribly wrong. Now, (laughs) we don't know why, but James marches his soldiers down the hill where they are essentially just slaughtered. They are running into a horrible soggy land to battle on and have lost the advantage of being uphill. Whereas the English army, well, they now hold the upper hand. We've given it to them. They are mostly fighting with swords and pikes, which is a giant spear. Whereas the English fought with bill hooks, which were like spikes with multiple swirly edges, which could outreach the Scottish swords. James IV fought with chivalry alongside his men. But unfortunately... As we learn with the Battle of Flodden and Game of Thrones, chivalry does not win us battles. However, we do learn from Lord of the Rings, Jenny, that chivalry wins us wars. But only if you have some elves, dwarves and most importantly, hobbits on your side. Well, unfortunately, there were no hobbits at Flodden. Now, an arrow struck King James IV and it became embedded in his lower jaw. With the rage of battle, he continued onwards, yet the arrow had injured him sufficiently and he was eventually sliced apart by the opposing forces. This lost the Scots the Battle of Flodden, and though many fought on, their cause was lost. Approximately 4,000 English soldiers were killed, although some estimates are less, and it's estimated that 10,000 Scots were killed on Flodden battlefield, their king fallen amongst them. And it's this tragedy that the Northern Lights were mourning in the sky in September 1513. Written by poet W.E. Aiton in 1864. Now it's telling us the story of folks in Edinburgh waiting to hear about the news from Flodden, the tragedy that has occurred just south of the border. News of battle, news of battle, hark, tis ringing down the street. 
and the archways and the pavement bring the clang of hurrying feet. News of battle, who hath brought it? News of triumph, who should bring? Tidings from our noble army, greetings from our gallant king. All last night we watched the beacons blazing on the hills afar, each one bearing, as it kindled, messengers of open war. All night long the northern streamers shot across the trembling sky, fearful lights that never beckon, save when kings or heroes die. Wow. So the funny thing is, Jenny, we're not even sure if there were any northern lights to memorialise Flodden, um, or if it was just a wee bit of Victorian poetic licence, which I think (laughs) is more likely. But it's captured the imagination, and it's certainly a fascinating battle, and it's a powerful story to think that there would have been an aurora on the night that Flodden was lost because it was such a crisis for Scotland. Mm. But in more recent memory, it's also said that Scots remembered when the Victorian former Prime Minister William Gladstone died because there were incredible northern lights. So perhaps there's a little bit of truth in this idea. I think it's kind of an extension of the night sky being a place to remember the fallen, the heavens and the sky, the soothing calm of star watching as a way of reflecting on folk's past. finish this episode I find a lovely Scottish song from Aberdeen. Now it was written by uh, Mary Webb who worked in a hospital kitchen down in England but one of her friends was from Aberdeen and was utterly homesick and kept describing it to her so she wrote this to make him feel better. When I was a lad, a tiny wee lad, my mother said to me Come and see the northern lights, my boy. They're bright as they can be. She called them the heavenly dancers, merry dancers in the sky. I'll never forget that wonderful sight. They made the heavens bright. The northern lights of Aberdeen are what I long to see. The northern lights of Aberdeen, that's where I long to be. I've been a wanderer all my life, and many a sight I've seen. God speed the day when I'm on my way back to my home in Aberdeen. I've wandered in many far-off lands and travelled many a mile. I've missed the folk I cherished most, the joy of a friendly smile. It warms up the heart of the wanderer, the clasp of a welcoming hand, to greet me when I return home to my native land. Oh, how lovely. I studied in Aberdeen, so it's very close to my heart as well. And that's our Northern Lights journey. Yay! Now, if you'd like to be a little bit of an international light for us, you can help support (laughs) us as we research, write and record our wee podcast by becoming a patron. Just go to www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland. I'll pop it in the episode notes and you can subscribe and support us as well as getting some weird and wonderful little snippets of extra content, folklore and mythology. Yes, and a big thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. A warm peak fire welcome to Laura, Cindy, Catherine, Catherine C, Sharon and Doreen. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. You can also support us by subscribing to the show on whatever platform you listen on. And we're also on all the social medias, so why not follow us on one or all of them too? 
Or you can also illuminate our skies by giving us a lovely little review because they are our lights in these dark and strange times. <laughs> but thank you all so much for just coming along on this journey with us and listening to our podcast. It means so much to us that you've joined us amongst the merry dancers. So until next time, Slangeva. Slangeva. Slangeva.